These recordings are intended for participants in the Porter Hospital Mental Health PHP and IOP program. These recordings are designed to supplement the material learned in groups and are not intended as a standalone treatment or a replacement for your own treatment. If you're having thoughts about harming yourself or others, please immediately contact your own treatment provider, take yourself to the nearest emergency room, or call 911. Welcome to the Porter Hospital Mental Health PHP and IOP audio recording series on improving your coping skills. These audio recordings are designed to supplement material presented in the context of treatment groups and other activities in the IOP PHP. The recordings will focus on the use of cognitive behavior therapy and dialectical behavior therapy skills. Practice these skills is essential to your ability to use them to your benefit to better manage any emotional and behavioral difficulties that you might have. The subject of this audio recording is a topic called activity scheduling. Activity scheduling is a basic core level intervention in cognitive behavior therapy frequently used with people who have a severe level of depression. By the end of this module, hopefully the participant will be able to identify behavior patterns that contribute to and maintain mood problems, that you'll be able to use graded activity to increase your activity level and complete tasks, and that you'll be able to develop a written activity schedule to make changes in behavior that will help increase adaptive behaviors including self-care, eating, sleeping, socialization, recreation, and enjoyment. At the time that you finish filling out either a daily or weekly activity schedule, we'll also monitor to check and see how you're doing in terms of maintaining mood improvement. As mentioned, activity scheduling is a core level intervention in the treatment of depression. It's also one of the core level foundation pieces in the PHP and IOP programs here at Porter Hospital. There are certain populations that tend to benefit from activity scheduling more than others. The basic population groups include passive people that have too little activity or hypersomnic, that is, sleep excessively through the day, people who tend to be avoidant or feel stuck in their treatment, people who feel overwhelmed by too many tasks, and people who have suicidal thoughts. As you'll likely hear several times through the program, our behavior tends to be congruent with our mood. That is, we tend to behave the way that we feel. And when we feel depressed, we tend to slow down, we tend to withdraw, and we tend to shut down. The purpose of activity scheduling is allow us to fight the way we feel and to be able to take care of tasks and engage in behaviors that are going to be beneficial for our depression rather than reinforcing our depression. The only problem is because we're going to feel like withdrawing, we're going to feel like shutting down, we're going to feel like going to bed, it's going to be very difficult to challenge some of those behaviors because they are so mood congruent. All the things that we're going to be talking about in activity scheduling are going to require the use of something called opposite action. That is, we're going to have to force ourselves to behave in a way that's opposite to the way that we feel if we want to make substantial improvements in the treatment of our depression. Remember, when we follow the way we feel when we're depressed, we tend to withdraw, we tend to avoid, we tend to isolate, we tend to shut down. The purpose of this is, instead of following the way you feel, to force yourself to get out, to be around other people, to do things, even though you don't feel like doing it. 
There are some things to remember as we go through this. Activity makes you feel better. It's not going to feel that way when you first start it, but after you've started, you're going to feel better after you do something, even if it's something small. Activity makes you feel less tired. Again, when you're depressed, you feel like you have very little energy at all. That's not exactly true. That's the lie that depression is telling you. And you need to be able to force yourself to do things. And when you do, you're going to feel more energized after you do it. Activity motivates you to do more. If you're able to start something small, chances are you'll be able to continue that and do other things as well. And activity improves your ability to think. When you're depressed, you're going to have difficulty making decisions. You're going to have trouble with attention and concentration. You're going to have trouble with memory. The more active you are, even if you have to force yourself, it means the clearer your thinking is going to become. Remember, we're not going to feel like doing anything when we're depressed. But if we follow the way we feel, we stay depressed. It's when we force ourselves to get out and act against the way that we feel that we make improvements in our level of depression. If you wait until you feel like doing it, you're going to be waiting a very, very long time. One of the concepts that we're going to become familiar with as we learn about activity scheduling is something called graduated activity. Graduated activity means we're going to start in small steps and keep doing things in small steps. For instance, if you have a mountain of laundry and it's time to do the laundry, you may look at that mountain of laundry and decide there's no way I'm going to be able to handle that. You'll wind up feeling overwhelmed and instead of getting a little bit done, you completely give up go to bed, lay on the couch, and watch TV. With graduated activity, instead, we're going to focus on taking tiny little steps and doing the smallest amount necessary to be able to at least start the activity, and then we're going to climb from there. So if it's laundry, we may separate out just one load of laundry. We may separate out the white colors. We may separate out the dark colors, the bright colors, and just focus on doing one load of laundry. After we've done just one load of laundry, we may focus then on moving it from the washer to the dryer. And after it's dried, we may focus on just getting it out of the dryer, folding it, and putting it away. We're not going to look at tackling the entire mountain of laundry. We're only going to focus on doing small steps towards the ultimate goal. It's better to go ahead and do one load of laundry than no laundry at all. It's better to go ahead and start a load of laundry rather than not doing it at all. Even if you don't get to the step of drying it or folding it and putting it away, at least you've done one step that's gotten you further ahead than you would had you not been able to do anything at all. So as we go through this, keep in mind we're going to try to do the smallest step possible. It's better to do a little bit than to do nothing at all. Now that we have some of the basic concepts of opposite action and graduated activity covered, we're going to move into actually completing an activity schedule. And by that I mean we actually get a piece of paper and we write down some of our plans for the day and what we can do to start taking action to make improvements with our depression. There are two basic activity schedules that are used in this program. One of those is a daily schedule, the other of those is a weekly schedule. If you're new to the program or you're still experiencing a severe level of depression, I'd suggest you go ahead and start out with the daily activity schedule. Some people find the weekly activity schedule too overwhelming when they first start out. The daily activity schedule only focuses on the day that you're in right now, 
coming up with some things that you're going to do for the day and just getting through the day. It's probably going to be a little bit too much to expect people to be able to do a weekly activity schedule at this point, but as you progress in the program and the depression improves, that would be the time then to move over to making a weekly activity schedule. On this recording, there should be two files one for a daily activity schedule, one for a weekly activity schedule. You can open both of those, print them out, and continue to use those through the remainder of your treatment. There are certain basic elements that are going to go into any activity schedule, whether it's the daily or the weekly activity schedule. The first of those is something called a sleep schedule. We're going to cover sleep in a little more detail in the recording on sleep hygiene, but for the purpose of our activity schedule, a sleep schedule is a consistent time that we go to bed at night and a consistent time that we wake up every morning. We're going to try to keep our sleep schedule as consistent as possible. The more consistent we can make it, the more stable we can make it. The more irregular it is, the harder it is to stabilize your sleep. The more your sleep is disturbed, the harder it is to recover from depression. So on our activity schedule right now, let's go ahead and write down a consistent time we're going to wake up every single morning. That means weekdays, weekends, holidays, and we're going to do this for at least two weeks. Some people report a benefit of continuing to do this beyond two weeks, but for the purpose of experimenting and seeing if this is going to help with our depression and our sleep, we're going to try to do this for at least two weeks. That means when the alarm goes off, we need to be able to get up instead of slapping the snooze button 15 or 16 times before we finally get out of bed or turning the alarm off altogether. That also means we're going to have a consistent schedule for getting to sleep at night. We may have to build in a wind-down schedule to be able to accommodate that, but again, we we want to have a consistent time to wake up, a consistent time to go to bed every night. The next item that we're going to be putting on our activity schedule is a consistent time to take medication. The more consistently we can take medication, the more effective it's going to be. The more inconsistent we are with medication, and as you probably guessed, the less effective it's going to be. If you've ever forgotten to take a dose of medication, if you've ever accidentally double-dosed yourself by forgetting to take medication, and forgetting if you've taken medication and then taken an extra dose, or if you've run out of medication or not been able to get it filled, this can be a helpful thing for you. We're going to try to take our medication at a consistent time every single day. If we can go ahead and schedule it, we're more likely to actually do it. There may be some things that help us remember to take our medication on a consistent basis. Some of the suggestions from other people in the program who've been in a similar situation are to set a cell phone alarm or set a watch alarm for the same time every single day as a reminder to take medication. Some people find it easier to remember to take medication if they combine it with some other behavior, such as eating. If you eat breakfast and take your daytime medication at the same time, you're more likely to eat breakfast. You're also more likely to take your medication on a consistent basis. There are also all sorts of medication boxes that have timers built into them. You might even need to rely on the assistance of a friend or family member in terms of making sure that you take your medication. Our next basic item for an activity schedule is eating. When people become depressed, they often lose their appetite, find that food is unappetizing, they don't enjoy eating. In fact, sometimes they feel a little worse after eating sometimes. 
But the fact remains that if we're not eating properly, it's going to lengthen the recovery period for depression. You need to be able to take care of yourself when you're depressed. And if you're neglecting yourself and not eating, it means you're treating yourself worse, and that's going to make it harder for you to recover from the depression. Eating is one of those basic things that we need to do. We don't have to eat a lot, but we do need to eat consistently. The more consistently we can eat, the better it's going to be for us to fight our depression. To help with our eating, we're going to focus again on doing it in small bites, if you will. We're going to try to identify foods that are appetizing, foods that we can eat even though we're not feeling like we have much of an appetite, and making sure we can eat consistently at least three meals a day. For some people, fresh fruit is something that they're able to tolerate even when they don't have an appetite for much else. Other people are able to eat yogurt, cereal, mashed potatoes, some fairly simple things. But again, we're going to make it as simple as possible. Also, if we're depressed, it means we may have let some things slide around the house. That can include things like washing the dishes, washing utensils, cleaning up pots and pans. And so cooking or even preparing food may feel a little bit overwhelming if we have other tasks we need to do first. What some people have found beneficial is to rely on paper plates and plasticware and being able to throw away those things at the end of the meal rather than thinking that they have to clean those things for the next meal. Some people prefer to do cereal, something simple that they can get down. Other people buy frozen microwave meals because of the ease of preparation and the ease of cleanup. Whatever you decide to do, you need to be able to do it consistently. It's going to be better for you to have several small meals through the day than only one meal. So plan ahead accordingly. Some people also find that it's easier to eat if they have someone to eat with, whether it's going out to dinner going to somebody else's house, or having somebody else come to their house. Remember, if you're not eating consistently, it's going to lengthen the recovery period for your depression. Self-care is another item that needs to go on our activity schedule. Again, when we get depressed, we tend to withdraw, we tend to isolate, we tend to shut down, and our self-care, what are called activities of daily living, or ADLs, tend to suffer. We can sometimes go days without showering, we can wear the same clothes for several days, we can neglect our hygiene, we may not brush our teeth, we may not brush our hair, we may not take care of much of anything in terms of our personal hygiene. But if you're not doing that, it also means you're less likely to leave the house, you're less likely to be around other people, and those things are essential to recovery from your depression. So we need to be able to schedule some self-care into our daily activity schedule and make sure it's something that we do every single day, regardless of if we feel like it or not. If we go ahead and the first thing that we do when we get up is to go shave or brush our teeth and shower, we're less likely to go back to bed and spend the day in bed. We're more likely to put on clean clothes. We're more likely to leave the house. We're more likely to be around other people. All things that tend to improve our depression rather than worsen our depression. Our next area to include in our activity schedule is exercise. This may be a little bit frightening to people who are severely depressed because of the lack of energy and motivation that they already have, but even a little bit of exercise can carry some tremendous benefits with it. Again, the more active we are, the better we feel, 
the more energized we feel, the clearer we think. So if you can find some way to get just a little bit of exercise in, even if it's just a walk around the block, even if it's just walking up and down the sidewalk for 15 or 20 minutes, that's going to be more beneficial to us than not doing anything at all. Again, we don't have to run marathons. We don't have to get an elliptical bike and go to a spin class. All we have to do is get some basic activity, and when we do that, that's going to provide some tremendous mood benefits. It may not happen immediately, but if you're able to consistently do it, you're going to continue to get benefits from it. Some people need to borrow motivation from other people to be able to do that. So if there's a family member, a friend, your children, a pet that you can use to help borrow some motivation and some energy initially, it's going to be able to help you consistently engage in some exercise. Remember, we're going to be doing things in graduated steps, small steps. Even if you can't walk around the block, being able to walk halfway around the block and back is still going to help. Even if you can't make it halfway, at least a quarter of a way around the block and then back is going to help. We're going to take it in as small steps as we need to to be able to do it. It's better to do a little bit than to not do anything at all. Remember, if you have other health problems, consult your PCP, your primary care physician, before engaging in any sort of exercise program. Those are the basic items that we want to include on an activity schedule. There are some other things that eventually we're going to want to put on our activity schedule, but for right now, those are the basics. Again, we're going to start out small, and we're going to take things in small steps. It's better to do a little bit than to do nothing at all. The more of those things we can do, the better off we're going to do. Even if you have those things on your activity schedule and you don't manage to accomplish all of them, if you've at least accomplished some of them, it's better than doing nothing at all. It's easy to feel defeated when you're depressed if you don't get all the things that you have written down. Instead of feeling defeated about that, recognize the things that you were able to accomplish, even though they're difficult, and focus on being able to just take one step further than you took today. One other item that you can put on your activity schedule and that you'll need to have on your activity schedule, particularly as your depression improves, is doing something for fun. When we get depressed, we get extremely anhedonic. It means we lose pleasure and interest in things. Many people have stopped doing hobbies, have stopped doing recreation, have given up activities that they enjoyed because of their depression. When we're depressed, again, you're probably not going to feel like doing things for fun. You're probably not going to think that you're able to have fun. But doing things specifically for pleasure is a key factor in fighting depression. If you're not doing things for fun, it's going to lengthen your recovery period. You may not feel like you're going to enjoy something even if you do it. That's a normal part of depression. You're probably going to wind up enjoying it more than you expect to. You may not enjoy it as much as you would when you're not depressed, but you're probably going to enjoy it more than you expect yourself to. If you're able to find something to do for fun, it's going to help you combat the depression. If you don't do anything for fun, it means you're reinforcing the depression. You're keeping yourself stuck in the same place. Hopefully by this point you've at least had a chance to start filling out your activity schedule. Be sure to include those basic elements. There's an activity schedule handout that goes along with this that supplements this material. There are some things you need to be aware of and be cautious about when you're working on your activity schedule. Some of the things to look out for are naps. 
when you're depressed, you don't have much energy, you want to make the time go by more quickly. So many people take naps and can spend hours during the day in bed. We're going to try to cut out naps as much as possible. Another thing to watch out for is excessive time watching TV. Between napping and TV, a lot of the day can be wasted. When we do those things, we don't necessarily feel better. We haven't done anything to improve the depression. We've just made time go by a little bit more quickly. If we were able to find things to do instead of napping, instead of watching TV, we have a better chance of improving our depression and being able to get some relief. The big thing to watch out for is huge chunks of unstructured time. When you're depressed and you have those huge chunks of unstructured time, those are the kiss of death. That's when you're more likely to go to bed. That's when you're more likely to nap. That's when you're more likely to watch TV. That's when you're more likely to engage in behaviors that tend to be self-defeating and are going to make things better, or worse rather than better. We need to eventually find ways of putting some more adaptive things into our activity schedule to better occupy our time. The difficult times for many people in this program are in the afternoons when the program is over with but nobody else is at home, evenings and nights if you live alone and nobody else lives with you, and weekends where there are large chunks of unstructured time. Coming up with a plan ahead of time to deal with those unstructured periods of time is going to be essential in combating the depression. Your therapist in the day treatment program can help you figure out some other options to fill those times. There will also be some groups that deal with those topics as well. Filling out an activity schedule every single day may seem to be a little bit redundant or it may seem to be a little bit overwhelming. That's okay. It's better to do a little bit than to do nothing at all. If you're able to use an activity schedule on a consistent basis, you're going to have a good tool to help you combat depression. If you decide not to do a daily activity schedule, it also means that there are likely other things that you're doing that could be exacerbating or worsening the depression as well. So this is one of those essential tools that we use to be able to deal with and improve depression. If you have any questions about activity scheduling or other elements of your treatment, don't hesitate to ask your therapist in the day treatment program. The topic for this audio recording is sleep hygiene. Sleep hygiene is a collection of related behaviors that are designed to improve and maintain sleep. The learning objectives for this module are to have participants identify their own problematic behaviors that may interfere with sleep, to develop a plan that incorporates elements of sleep hygiene into their own sleep regimen, and then to be able to monitor their sleep and report back any changes in their sleeping patterns. Almost every mood disorder, in fact most psychiatric disorders, include a sleep disturbance. With depression, people usually have difficulty with sleeping called insomnia. There are several different kinds of insomnia. When people lay down to go to bed and have a difficult time going to sleep, it's called initial insomnia. When you wake up in the middle of the night, you toss and turn, you have a hard time going back to sleep, it's called middle insomnia. When you wake up early in the morning, hours earlier than you're planning to wake up and are not able to get back to sleep, it's called terminal insomnia. 
The other side of that coin is people who have something called hypersomnia. As the name implies, we sleep excessively. We sleep too much. Problems with sleep are going to limit our ability to improve our depression. And the better able we are to manage our sleep, the better able we're going to be to manage our mood difficulties. The purpose of sleep hygiene is then to identify some problematic behaviors that may interfere with sleep and to identify new, more adaptive behaviors that we can use instead to be able to improve and maintain our sleep. There's some interesting research that indicates that the protocols we're going to be talking about here have been proven to be more effective long-term than many sleep medications in terms of restoring our sleep and maintaining our sleep. Many of these measures may seem common sense and simplistic, but despite that, they tend to be very effective. The more of these things that we can use together, the more effective they will be in maintaining our sleep. We want to do these interventions for at least two weeks consistently. We don't necessarily have to continue these things the rest of our life, although some people do report when they follow the sleep hygiene protocols, they have much better sleep. And when they vary from the sleep hygiene protocols, they have great difficulty with their sleep. The first area that we're going to address in sleep hygiene is also one that we mentioned in our activity scheduling recording and module, and that is establishing a consistent sleep schedule. Consistency is the key word here. We want to make our sleep pattern as consistent as possible. If some nights we're going to bed at 7 p.m. and other nights we're going to bed at 2 a.m., it's going to make it extremely difficult for our brains and our bodies to adapt and to allow us to sleep consistently. So we're going to establish a consistent sleep schedule. Hopefully you've already started that through your work and activity scheduling, but if not, now is the time to start. We want to have a consistent time to go to bed at night. We want to have a consistent time to wake up in the morning. The more com consistent we can make that, the more consistent our sleep is going to be. For us to be able to go to bed consistently, it means we need to have probably a wind-down period of 45 minutes to an hour prior to the time we actually go to bed. If you're scrambling madly trying to get everything accomplished before you go to bed, you're doing laundry, you're washing dishes, you're getting the kids ready for bed, you're taking care of odds and ends around the house, it means when you try to go to bed, your system's going to be cranked into high gear. We want to have some restful way of allowing you to be able to wind down to the point where you can go to sleep. It's usually at this point that several people mention, what if your schedule doesn't allow that? The answer to that is, if your schedule is so busy that you're not able to wind down to go to sleep, you do not have a sustainable schedule. It's going to contribute to ongoing mood problems and other difficulties until you're able to make sufficient changes in your schedule on an ongoing basis to allow that to happen. Having a consistent ritual for bedtime that allows you to wind down and ease into sleep is going to be a huge factor in improving your sleep on a long-term basis. Getting out of bed at a consistent time in the morning is also going to be a key to improving your sleep. When people are depressed, it's usually very difficult for them to get out of bed for a number of reasons. They hit the snooze several times, if not more than that. They turn off the alarm. 
They stay in bed until late in the day sometimes, but those behaviors tend to worsen our mood. They reinforce the depression rather than improving things. The people that sleep 12, 16, or more hours a day generally don't feel better rested. They don't feel less depressed. They don't feel more energetic. It just makes the time go by more quickly. But if we were to change that pattern, if we were to force ourselves to do things that are going to improve our sleep, it's also going to improve our depression. But we're going to have to force ourselves to do that. That goes back to the concept of opposite action that we spoke of in the activity scheduling module. Remember, we want to make our sleep as consistent as we can make it. The more consistent it is, the better we're going to sleep now, the better we're going to sleep in the future. The next item is usually a difficult one for many people. We're going to recommend no naps during the day. That's right, no naps during the day. If we're sleeping during the day, generally speaking, it's going to worsen our sleep at night. Again, people who are depressed and do nap during the day generally don't feel better mood-wise. They don't feel less depressed. They don't feel better rested. They don't feel more energetic or motivated. It just makes the time go by more quickly. But what it's also doing is reinforcing the depression and ruining your sleep at night. We're going to try to cut out naps entirely. Again, if you're sleeping during the day, you're not going to sleep as well at night. It also means if you're sleeping during the day that you're not doing other things that could be better for improving your depression and helping you recover from your depression. Naps make things worse, not better. We're going to try to eliminate them as much as possible. Our next recommendation is to sleep only when sleepy. That means at night. If you're in bed for hours at a time, you can't sleep, it's the middle of the night. If you're depressed, you're usually going to be bombarded by a lot of negative thoughts, anxious thoughts, hopeless thoughts, helpless thoughts. It's going to make your depression worse instead of better. So if you find yourself unable to sleep for 20 to 30 minutes, it's time to go ahead and get out of bed. What some people report is if they keep the lights off, and just stand up by the side of the bed and keep their eyes closed, again, assuming they don't have balance problems or low blood pressure problems. If they can stand there for a few minutes, sometimes they feel drowsy enough to be able to lay back in bed and go to sleep. If that doesn't work, it's time to get out of bed. But there are a couple of warnings that go along with this. The first is, we don't want to turn on the lights. If we turn on the lights, it's a signal to our brain that it's time to wake up. That's going to make going back to sleep more difficult. So we're going to want to keep the lights out or the lights as low as possible. We're not going to engage in any behaviors that are going to make us more awake, more alert, or get our system cranked up physically. That leaves us just a very few options for things that we can do while we're awake in the middle of the night trying to get back to sleep. Some people watch TV. Sometimes that can be helpful, but you need to be careful with the programs you choose. If you find a TV show that's interesting, if you find an old favorite show or movie on, you may get so interested in that that it makes you more awake, more alert, and you may continue to watch the show past the point when you're drowsy enough to actually be able to go back to sleep and go to bed. So if you are going to watch the TV, find something boring. Find an infomercial that has no attraction to you at all. Turn on some sort of stock exchange report. Turn on the farm report, assuming that you're not interested in those sort of things. But find something that's boring. 
find something that's not going to hold your attention. Some people can read if they keep the lights low enough to be able to read, but again, you have to practice choosing the right selections. If you pick up a favorite novel, you may get so interested that it makes you more awake, more alert, and again, you may read past the point when you're drowsy enough to actually get back to sleep. Find something boring. Keep the lights low. Pick up your vacuum cleaner manual. Read the end-user license agreement on any software package that you have. Find something that you have no interest in, something that you're not going to get excited about, and try to focus on that. Avoid computer games because, again, they're going to make you more awake and more alert. Sometimes you might be able to do something like color in a kid's coloring book with crayons. You may be able to do some knitting with the lights on low. But whatever you do, don't make it too physically demanding. Don't make it too interesting. Don't make your brain wake up. Don't make your body wake up more than necessary. If you decide to clean in the middle of the night, that's just going to crank your system up and make it almost impossible to get back to sleep. When you do feel yourself getting drowsy, go back to bed, lie down, see if you can get to sleep. If you can't get to sleep in 20 or 30 minutes, it's time to get back out of bed and repeat the process. The temptation is then the next day to take a nap during the day because you haven't slept well at night. And if you do that, it really throws a monkey wrench into this plan because the idea is we want you to not sleep during the day so you'll be better able to sleep the next night, even if it means you've gone without some sleep. A next item, don't look at the clock when you wake up in the night. If you look at the clock, it means you're going to be calculating how long you've been asleep, if you get to sleep now, how much longer you can sleep before you have to wake up, how long it's been since the last time you woke up and looked at the clock. All that calculating is going to make you mentally more alert and more awake, so face the alarm clock away from yourself. Another one that seems fairly obvious is no exercise within four hours of bedtime. If you're exercising, it means your body's going to be cranked into high gear. If your body's cranked into high gear, it means it's going to be difficult for you to be able to get to sleep. Again, if you say the only time I have to exercise is right before bed, it means you have a lifestyle that's not sustainable in the long term. You need to make some changes to your lifestyle to better sleep and better manage your mood. Our next item is to use the bed and the bedroom for sleep only, with one exception, and we'll cover that in a little bit. For many people, the bed and the bedroom become command central for their lives. Not only do they try to sleep in the bed, they eat in their bed, they read in their bed, they make phone calls in their bed, they balance the checkbook, they pay the bills, they bring work home, and all the stuff winds up in the bed. With all that going on, the bed and the bedroom are no longer a sanctuary for sleep. We need to get all that stuff out. That can include computer, TV, even radio sometimes, so that we can make the bedroom and the bed a sanctuary for sleep. Other people use the bed as storage. They have books, they have magazines, they have newspapers, they have clothes, they have any number of things that they have to push out of the way to make a space big enough for them to be able to lie down, but then it causes them all sorts of problems at night. Get everything off the bed, make the bed in the bedroom a sanctuary for sleep. The one exception to that is you can also use the bed in the bedroom for sex. When you're depressed, you may not feel like it, but that's the exception that we have going on right now. Move everything out. 
make the bed in the bedroom a sanctuary for sleep. Some people thought that wasn't a necessary thing to do, but when they did it, they were surprised at how much better their sleep got. Our next item, again, that may seem fairly obvious, is avoiding caffeine after 12 noon. A lot of people guzzle soft drinks throughout the day. They have coffee throughout the evening. But all that caffeine is a stimulant, and if you're dumping stimulants into your system, it's going to keep you up at night. This is another area where people don't realize the impact that this has on their sleep. The people that thought the, the caffeine was insignificant with their sleep, when they did discontinue it afternoon, were surprised how much better their sleep was. Caffeine is a stimulant, and if you're dumping a stimulant into your system, it's going to interfere with your sleep. The problem is, if we're not sleeping well, we may rely on caffeinated drinks to be able to help wake us up and make us alert. But then we sleep poorly the next night, so we rely on caffeine to make us more alert the next day. But then we sleep poorly at night, so we rely on caffeine the next day. We may find our caffeine intake going up and up and up, our sleep going down and down, and not realize the link between those two things. If at all possible, discontinue caffeine after noon. Sometimes a light snack before bed can help us sleep. By a light snack, it means something that's not going to be too spicy, not something that's going to be too greasy. We want something that's going to be easy to digest to help us sleep. A little bit of cereal might be something. A glass of milk might be something. A giant pepperoni pizza with jalapenos is probably not the ideal snack. All that spice, all that grease is going to keep our digestive system up, and that's going to keep us up. A lot of people take a bath or a shower before bedtime. The problem is, while a hot bath or a hot shower may help relax us, it's going to increase our core body temperature. It's the drop in core body temperature that helps us get to sleep and stay asleep. So if we do that, make sure to do it 90 minutes or more before we try to go to bed. We tend to sleep better when it's cooler. We tend to sleep better when it's quieter. We tend to sleep better when it's darker. The more cool, quiet, and dark we can make our bedroom, the better we're going to sleep. If you have a flashing, noisy neon light right outside your bedroom window, that's probably going to have a negative effect on your sleep. Some people can get heavy-duty curtains. Some people need to put foil over their windows. Some people need to have some source of white noise, like a fan or something else, to be able to get rid of some of the external noises that may cause us problems with our sleep. Some people want to listen to the TV or the radio while they go to sleep, and have been doing it sometimes for years. The problem is that if we leave the TV or radio on, the difference in the noise that it makes can be enough to lift us out of sleep. Our sleep could be shallow enough that any sort of change can make us more awake and more alert without fully waking us up. So even if we are sleeping, it's not a particularly restful sleep. Some people decide that they can set the timer on the TV or the radio so that it goes off at a certain interval. The problem is when there's no more noise, when there's that abrupt change, that's sometimes enough to wake us up. Again, we get rid of the radio, we get rid of the TV, we get rid of the computer out of the bedroom and don't rely on those to help us get to sleep. Another obvious area is avoiding fluids before bedtime. The less we can drink 
within a couple of hours of bed, the less we're going to have to get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. Another fairly obvious one is avoiding alcohol. Alcohol is a central nervous system depressant. Some people use it to be able to induce sleep. The problem is that it's a fairly light sleep. It's a fairly restless sleep. And because alcohol is a depressant, it's going to actually make us more depressed the more we continue to use it. It's not a good solution to sleep problems. And frequently it turns into its own problem. An interesting one is you can use sunlight to help reset your biological clock. There's some evidence that when you get up in the morning, if you go outside and spend 15 to 30 minutes facing the morning sun, it can help reset your biological clock. It can help you sleep. It can also help with depression. Those are some of the basic things for sleep hygiene. There are some other suggestions listed on the sleep hygiene handout, but if you can identify some of those things that you do that may be problematic for your sleep, if you can make some adaptive changes in those behaviors and use those consistently for at least two weeks, it can have a beneficial effect on your sleep and also a beneficial effect on your depression and any mood difficulties that you might have. Do it consistently for two weeks and let's see how that works in terms of managing sleep and managing mood. Again, any questions you have about sleep hygiene or other modules that we're working on, be sure to ask your treatment coordinator for assistance with those. We hope you find these audio recordings helpful. These were designed to supplement the coping skills you've been learning in the CBT and DBT groups, not to replace those groups. We plan to add additional audio recordings in the very near future. If you have any questions, please contact your treatment coordinator. Welcome to the Porter Hospital Mental Health PHP and IOP audio recording series on improving your coping skills. These audio recordings are designed to supplement material presented in the context of treatment groups and other activities in the IOP PHP. The recordings will focus on the use of cognitive behavior therapy and dialectical behavior therapy skills. Practice these skills is essential to your ability to use them to your benefit to better manage any emotional and behavioral difficulties that you might have. These recordings are intended for participants in the Porter Hospital Mental Health PHP and IOP program. These recordings are designed to supplement the material learned in groups and are not intended as a standalone treatment or a replacement for your own treatment. If you're having thoughts about harming yourself or others, please immediately contact your own treatment provider, take yourself to the nearest emergency room, or call 911. In this audio recording, we're going to be doing an introduction to cognitive behavior therapy. Cognitive behavior therapy is often abbreviated as CBT. I'm going to be using both terms interchangeably throughout this recording. Cognitive behavior therapy is a combination of two different therapies, behavior therapy and cognitive therapy, obviously. We're going to be talking more in the context of the cognitive therapy aspect of this for the purpose of this recording, and we can go into behavior therapy in a little more detail, possibly in a later audio recording. Cognitive therapy was developed specifically to treat depression. 
It's a very scientifically validated means of treatment. Clinicians go to great lengths to validate the means of treatment and prove that they're effective. If clinicians discover that certain methods are not particularly effective, they're generally dropped and new methods that are proven to be more effective are added. Cognitive therapy has the distinction of being the first form of verbal psychotherapy that's proven to be as effective as antidepressant medication in treating mild to moderate and sometimes severe unipolar depression. Cognitive therapy has developed now to the point where it's considered to be the treatment of choice for many disorders, including depression, anxiety disorders, and many other psychiatric disorders. Before we go too far, we need to talk about the different elements that compose a problem and the way that CBT can be used to address those things. Any problem is usually going to have five elements to that problem. The first element of this is the environmental component. By environmental, I don't mean global warming. I mean anything that is external to us that causes a vulnerability or a difficulty in our functioning and makes things worse. That could include things like marital problems, relationship problems, problems at work, problems with friends, money problems, housing problems, anything that's external to us. The next problem element is going to be the biological. Biological can be the big things like having a major depressive disorder, having a bipolar disorder that obviously have a a huge biological aspect to them, but it could be other biological elements as well. That can include things like severe pain or chronic pain. Pain is something that's going to make depression feel worse. Depression is going to make make the pain feel worse. They play off of each other very well. Other biological factors could include things like something as simple as allergies, not sleeping well, not eating well. Anything that's going to have a biological component and it's going to be a vulnerability for us. The next one is emotions. We're talking about the big ones like depression, anxiety, anger and rage, guilt or shame. All those emotional difficulties are going to be elements of a problem. They may not be the problem themselves, but they may be elements of the problem. Our next element is behavior. We can usually divide behavior up into two categories. Behavioral excesses, or things that we do too much of, and behavioral deficits, or things that we don't do enough of. Behavioral excesses could be things like drinking or drugging, which would obviously have a biological tie into them. It could be spending money. It could be gambling. It could be excessive sleep. There could be lots of different things that we do excessively that contribute to our overall problem. On the behavioral deficit side of things are things that we do too little of. That could be self-care. That could be isolation and withdrawal. That could be avoiding social contacts with other people. It could be not doing the things that we need to do to adequately recover from whatever problem we have. Our final element is thinking. The thinking element could include things like constantly putting yourself down and calling yourself names. It could be always expecting yourself to perform poorly. It could always be expecting you you to be rejected by other people. All these elements are interrelated. In fact, if you look in the CBT handbook, and I'll have an electronic file for people to download or a paper version of that, if we look in the first section under Figure 1, you'll see an illustration of what I've been talking about. You'll notice all these elements are interconnected. They're all interdependent. If we have a problem in one area, 
we're going to have problems in other areas. If we have an element of our biology that's causing some problems, chances are we're going to have a problem in our behavior, in our emotions, in our thinking, in our environment. All these things are interconnected. That's an unfortunate part of things. The fortunate side of things is that because all these things are interconnected, if we make a positive change in any one of those elements, it's going to have a beneficial effect on all the other elements. The more beneficial changes we can make to as many elements as possible, the better we're going to be able to treat our problem, the more rapidly we're going to be able to bring things back to baseline, the better we're going to prevent a relapse of our symptoms. When many people hear the term cognitive behavioral therapy, they assume that it's our thinking or behavior that are the only elements that contribute to the problem. That's not true. As we indicated, there are usually five elements to any problem that we have. The better we can identify those elements, the better we can address them and do something about them. But for the purpose of therapy, in CBT, we're obviously going to be focusing on two of those elements more than the others. That is, we're going to be focusing on our thinking and our behavior. That's not to say that those are the only things that are worth treating or the only things that are causing a problem. What we're saying are those are going to be the target of intervention, the thing that we're going to spend the most time on. Our thinking has a tremendous impact on our emotions. And if our thinking is not realistic, if our thinking is biased, if our thinking is downright squirrely, it's going to have a major impact on the way that we feel. And if we can catch those thoughts and make them not necessarily more positive but more realistic, we have a much better chance of stabilizing our emotions. So, to summarize a little of what we've talked about already, every problem has five elements. Environment, biology, emotions, behavior, and thinking. If we can identify those five elements, we have a better chance of doing something adaptive to make some changes in that area. Keep in mind, we're going to be focusing primarily on our thinking and secondarily on our behavior as a means of making changes to our problems. At a very basic level, what we're saying is our thinking affects our emotions. This is not a new concept. Even in 60 AD, there was a Stoic philosopher that said that men are not upset by things and events but what they tell themselves about those things and events. It's not what happens to us. It's what we tell ourselves about what happens to us that's ultimately going to cause the emotional difficulties that we're experiencing. There's a fairly complex model that explains the process of how our perceptions get converted into emotions. I'm going to refer you to look in the manual for that information in the first section. Let me walk you through a very brief run-through of that. For us to be aware of anything... We have to perceive it through our sensory organs. It has to go through our sensory organs to our central nervous system. It's communicated from our central nervous system to our brain. Even if it makes it to our brain, it has to be perceived. It has to be noticed. And when it's noticed, we take a look at it and we assign a value to it. We decide if it's good or bad, right or wrong. At that point, we have inferences. And from those inferences, from those interpretations, we draw conclusions. Once we've drawn a conclusion, that's where we have emotions. It may seem like it happens too fast for that, but we have to go through each of those steps before we actually experience an emotion. It's a fairly complicated process. So when we talk about our thinking affecting our emotions, remember, emotions don't just happen. They don't just come from nowhere. There's a very definite process involved. We have to perceive things. Once they've gone through our sensory organs, traveled up our central nervous system, gone to our brain, perceiving them, 
making inferences, making interpretations, drawing conclusions, and then having emotions. There are two treatment principles that we don't often talk about but are there in CBT. One of those is something called collaborative empiricism. The other is something called guided discovery. Collaborative empiricism is a relationship between the therapist and the participant and possibly other participants in the CBT group where the therapist and the participant agree to work together to challenge some of their beliefs and thoughts and make changes in their behavior. Guided discovery involves a few basic elements, including Socratic questions. We're going to be doing more about Socratic questions later on, but right now, Socratic questions are a way of questioning and challenging our thoughts in a way that we can draw our own conclusions about how helpful and realistic some of our thinking is. It also involves accurate listening and validation of the other person's point of view, and a summary of any new facts or information that's discovered in the process of our Socratic questioning, and then making a synthesis of the new information that's presented and comparing it to the original thought or belief. If that sounds kind of complicated, that's okay. We're going to talk about these things later on. The main ideas I want you to get from this is I want the participant to be a partner with the therapist in terms of being able to objectively identify thoughts, questioning challenging thoughts, and developing new, more realistic possibilities than what the original thoughts were. And also being able to allow the person to examine the evidence for the reality of their thoughts and draw their own conclusion in terms of what a more helpful, realistic, or adaptive response might be. At this point, we're going to go back and revisit one of the ideas that we've already talked about. Our thinking is a major contributor to our emotions. And if our thinking is unrealistic, if our thinking is biased, if our thinking is squirrely, our emotions are going to follow along. Our emotions have no choice but to follow our thoughts. And if our thinking is a little bit squirrely, how are our emotions going to be? A little bit squirrely. This is the main concept I want you to get right now. Our thinking has a tremendous impact on our emotions. And if our thinking is not realistic our emotions are going to be blown out of proportion. To try to illustrate that point, I'm going to use my favorite example. This is actually an example from a DBT therapist, but I think it illustrates the process well. Uh, this person I'm talking about is a psychologist who lives in the Seattle area. She lives in a fairly old neighborhood that at one point was a very affluent area of town. There were big houses, Wealthy families lived there, and over the years there were a lot of changes. The, the original residents moved out, new residents moved in, and eventually the neighborhood fell into disrepair. People moved out. The, it wasn't a very good neighborhood. There were some seedy elements that moved in, including some liquor stores on the corners. And then again, after a period of time, a better element moved in. People bought the houses, fixed the houses, restored things. So you have a, a fairly nice neighborhood again, even though there's still some seedy elements on the corners, including liquor stores and things like that. Uh, the psychologist was out on a weekend morning teaching her daughter how to ride her bike without the, the training wheels on. And the daughter was riding her bike up and down the sidewalk, and the psychologist could see down the street on the sidewalk there was a person moving down the sidewalk towards her house, and even at a distance she can tell the person was moving very slowly, had an unsteady gait, uh, was wearing a big coat, and it was really too warm of a day to be wearing a coat that heavy. Can you guess what she was thinking to herself when she saw that? If you guessed, here comes one of our local neighborhood alcoholics, I wonder if this is the guy that pees in my rose bushes at night, that would be accurate. That's exactly what she was thinking. 
Based on those thoughts, how do you think she was probably feeling? In this case, she was feeling a little irritated and annoyed, and also a little bit anxious, because she didn't know what this person was going to be doing as it got closer to her house. But the daughter kept riding her bike up and down the sidewalk, and as this person got closer, the psychologist could see some more details. She noticed that the person had several days' growth of beard on his face, his hair looked kind of greasy and matted down, was moving very slowly, had a very unsteady gait which seemed to reinforce her thought that this is one of the local neighborhood alcoholics. And as this person kept coming down the, the sidewalk, the daughter kept riding her bike back and forth. About the time this person was going to walk on the sidewalk onto her property line, the daughter turned the bike around and started riding down the sidewalk towards him. And while she was doing that, the psychologist was kind of mentally willing her daughter, don't hit him with the bike, don't hit him with the bike. And the daughter managed to, to ride by him and almost missed him, but managed to snag his coat with the handlebar of her bike. Now, this guy is already kind of unsteady on his feet, and he weaved a couple of times, and then he went down on our lawn. And not only did he go down on our lawn, or stay down on our lawn. Can you guess what she's thinking at this point? Her exact thought was, I'm about to get sued. This guy's going to go after my homeowner's insurance. Can you guess how she was probably feeling at this point? If you're guessing kind of angry, kind of frustrated, and a little bit anxious, worried that she's going to be sued, you'd be right. So she walked over to the guy and leaned down and touched him on the shoulder and said, Can I help you up? Here, let me help you up. And he looked up at her and said, I just had a kidney transplant, and I think I tore one of my stitches. Can you guess what her reaction was at that point? It went from anger and irritability to concern and empathy and a little bit of anxiety, but for a different reason at that point. The point I'm trying to make here, the point I'm trying to illustrate is that the perceptions that she had, the inferences and the interpretations that she was making seemed reasonable at the time that they were happening, at the time that they were going on, and her emotions followed along with that. As soon as she got contradictory information, as soon as she had information that gave her a new point of view on things, her emotions immediately changed. She was no longer angry and irritable. She was now concerned and anxious in a different way. Our emotions have no choice but to follow our thoughts. And if our thinking is unrealistic or biased, so will our emotions be. What we're going to be focusing on then is identifying our thoughts, questioning and challenging those thoughts, and developing new, more realistic ways to look at things. We're going to be moving on here to the concept of automatic thoughts. As the name suggests, automatic thoughts are automatic. We're not trying to have them. We don't want to have them. They're immediate reactions, immediate responses that we have in our head to situations that are going on. They happen simultaneously with things that happen to us. They're experienced so rapidly that most people assume the thoughts are part of the experience rather than a phenomenon separate from the experience. Automatic thoughts have several common characteristics. Automatic thoughts are almost always believed because even when they're noticed, they're rarely questioned or challenged. Automatic thoughts are as believable as direct sensory impressions. If we see somebody driving down the street in their new red Porsche, and we think to ourselves, he's rich, he doesn't care about anybody but himself, at the moment we have that thought, that thought is as real as the visual impression we have of the person driving in the car. We don't question them, we don't challenge them, we accept them as part of the experience. And when that happens, they have a huge impact on the way that we feel, but we don't have any handle to work on those things or question and challenge those things. 
automatic thoughts are involuntary. You can't turn them off. You can't stop them. There's not a spigot with a handle in your head you can crank to make the thoughts stop coming. What you can do is identify them and work with them, rather than try to completely shut them off. It's worth pointing out that not all automatic thoughts are negative. We can have some positive automatic thoughts, we can have some neutral automatic thoughts, and we can also have some pretty negative automatic thoughts. An example of a positive automatic thought was, we do a good job at work, somebody mentions something, and we think, yeah, I did do a pretty good job. That's an example of a positive automatic thought. It could be that we're driving home and we think, you know, it's 5.30 right now, I bet the freeway's jammed, I better take a side street. That's kind of a neutral automatic thought. It doesn't contribute to any bad emotions. It's just an observation that we make. And then we can have the pretty negative automatic thoughts. We can beat ourselves up. We can call ourselves names. We expect ourselves to fail. We expect for nobody else to like us. We bombard ourselves with all these negative messages. And instead of questioning or challenging them, we accept them at face value. And then we have a huge emotional consequence as a result of that. At this point, I'm also going to throw in the concept of what's called the cognitive triad of depression. That is, there are three negative ways that we tend to view things in order to get depressed and in order to stay depressed. The first of these is that we have a negative view of ourself. We're biased against ourselves. We're prone to noticing any tiny mistake that we make. And when we notice it, we beat ourselves up, we call ourselves names, we rip ourselves to shreds. We expect ourselves to fail. We sometimes expect ourselves to fail so much that we don't even bother doing things, figuring we're not going to do it well enough anyway. We have an extreme bias against ourselves. Our next one is that we have a negative view of our world and our experiences. Whenever we're depressed, how easy is it to get overwhelmed? It seems like the tiniest things can cause us to be overwhelmed when we're depressed. And that's what happens with a negative view of the world and the negative view of experiences. We expect things to be overwhelming. We expect not to be able to get through things. We experience any sort of setback as a huge, insurmountable obstacle. Things that could be simple when we're not depressed become absolutely overwhelming when we are depressed. We tend to notice the negative things that go on. If we watch the news when we're depressed, it's almost an overwhelming experience sometimes because of the negative bias that's in the news, and it makes us feel even more depressed. Finally, we can have a negative view of our future. We don't expect things to ever get any better. We figure, why bother? Nothing's ever going to make any difference anyway. Treatment's not going to work. The medication is not going to work. Why do you even make an effort? Those three negative views are at the core of depression. When we look at our negative thoughts, I want you to look for the themes of a negative view of yourself, a negative view of your world and experiences, and a negative view of your future. So to quickly summarize, everyone has what are called automatic thoughts. They're thoughts that are automatic. We're not trying to have them. We don't want to have them. But we get into a situation and, as Emerald says, bam! There they are. We have responses to those things. And those thoughts have a huge impact on the way that we feel. Within those automatic thoughts are what are called cognitive distortions. Cognitive distortions are biases in the way that we see things, in the way that we look at things, in the interpretations that we make, in the conclusions that we draw. A distortion is something that causes something to not be accurate, to be biased. 
if we go to the Circus Funhouse and we walk into the House of Mirrors, our view is biased. It's distorted. When we look at ourselves in that mirror, we're three feet tall, we're four feet wide, we have nostrils the size of manhole covers with pine trees growing out of them. It's us, but it's not an accurate reflection of us. It's distorted. The same thing happens with our thinking. So what we're going to be looking for are what are called cognitive distortions in our thinking, the ways that we may make some information processing errors, the ways that our thinking may be biased, may be prejudiced, may be inaccurate. The first of those is something called all-or-none thinking. It's also called polarized thinking, dichotomous thinking, black-and-white thinking. With all-or-none thinking, our thinking is very extreme in either direction, where things are either completely and totally good or completely and totally bad. We either do wonderfully or we failed horribly. A person is either completely wonderful or the lowest skim of the earth. They're either one of the two extremes with absolutely no room in the middle. All-or-none thinking contributes to huge mood swings. My favorite example of all-or-none thinking involves an old college roommate of mine. This is a guy who, all through school, had perfect grades. It's not that he was the brightest guy in the world, but his family valued grades, and he valued grades, and he worked hard to get good grades. So he graduated valedictorian of his high school and had straight A's through college until about his junior year, when he got a B. And for him, that was absolutely devastating. Everything I've worked so hard for my entire life is now gone. I'm never going to be able to get into the graduate school I want to go to. I'm never going to be able to have the job that I want to get. All my work has been for nothing. For him, it had to be perfect. And if it wasn't perfect, it was an utter failure. There was no room between those two extremes. Can you think of any examples of all or none thinking in your thoughts? Our next distortion is something called overgeneralization. When we generalize something, we take a very specific situation and apply it to a broader situation. So, for instance, we practice and do role-playing in the Dear Man skill in group, and then we take it home and practice it at home. We're said to have generalized that skill. We've taken it from a very specific setting, the group, into a more broad situation, home, with family or friends. We've generalized that skill. Overgeneralization overapplies things. We use words like always or never. We take a very specific example, a very specific situation, or a very specific mistake or bad time, and we overapply it to our lives. If we walk outside and find a big blob of bird duty on our windshield, we may tell ourselves, birds are always pooping on my car. If we wake up feeling bad in the morning, we may tell ourselves, the whole day's run because I feel bad now. We take a very specific situation or example, and we over-apply it. Can you think of any ways that your thinking may include overgeneralization? Our next cognitive distortion is something called mental filtering. It can also be called content bias or selective abstraction or tunnel vision. With this distortion, we pick out of a broad situation a very specific element. It's like missing the forest because you're so focused on a single tree. Out of any complex situation, we identify one element and focus on that and ignore every other aspect. If you give a presentation at work and everybody gives you compliments except for one person who points out one tiny flaw, the only thing you notice after that is the one tiny flaw, not the other things, not the other compliments that people have given you. When we're depressed, 
It's easy to notice any tiny mistake we make, while at the same time ignoring big achievements that we've been able to do that day. Our mind is naturally drawn to those things because of the metal filtering. When you're ruminating, you're also using metal filtering because you're so focused on only one aspect, obsessively focusing on that aspect, you miss everything else. Can you think of any ways that you use metal filtering in your automatic thoughts? Our next distortion is something called discounting the positive. It can also be called rejecting alternate explanations. If you have difficulty accepting compliments, you've used discounting the positive. That's where we actively disapprove, disagree, shoot down any positive thing anybody says or any achievement that we have to stay focused on the negative element of things. If somebody gives you a compliment, you disqualify it. If somebody has, says you have a nice sweater on, you may say things like, they didn't really mean it. They were just saying it because they didn't want to hurt my feelings, or they must want something for me. Can you think of any way that you use discounting the positive? Our next distortion is something called jumping to conclusions. It can also be called arbitrary inference. When we jump to conclusions, we make assumptions. If we don't have sufficient information and we draw a conclusion, we have used jumping to conclusions. There are a couple of different forms of jumping to conclusions. One of those is called predicting the future, or fortune-telling. We pretend like we know the outcome of things without really having any way to accurately predict the outcome of things. The other is mind-reading. We pretend like we know what other people are thinking without bothering to ask them. Jumping to conclusions is one of the major sources for anxiety. Anytime you're anxious, you're going to find jumping to conclusions. This also segues nicely into our next distortion, which is called awfulizing. It's also known as magnification or catastrophizing. When we talk about awfulizing, we're not saying that bad things can't and don't happen. What we are saying is that we may chronically expect the absolute worst outcome in any situation. We expect ourselves to do poorly. We expect the worst outcome, and we see that as the only realistic outcome, and we're convinced of that. Catastrophizing is another element of anxiety. Whenever you're anxious, look for the jumping to conclusions and look for the awfulizing. Our next distortion is a little bit abstract, and it's difficult to explain sometimes. It's called emotional reasoning. When we use emotional reasoning, we're confusing our feelings for facts. We tend to believe the things that have the greatest emotional impact more than the things that have the greatest evidence. Whenever we have a thought that's particularly painful, we're walking down the sidewalk, we trip on a crack, and we think to ourselves, I'm incompetent, I can't even walk right. That may have such an emotional impact, such an emotional punch in the gut, that it makes that thought seem that much more real, even though it's not. Our next distortion is something called should statements. This is another fairly abstract distortion that may be difficult to grasp at first. Should statements are demands. They're unrealistic expectations. We don't even actually have to use the word should in our automatic thought for it to be there because we're not looking semantically for the should. We're looking philosophically for the demand or for the unrealistic expectation. If you have anger, if you have guilt, you're going to have some should statements hiding in there. Whenever we set up unrealistically high expectations for ourselves and we fail to meet those, 
we're going to beat ourselves up, and we're going to feel guilty because of that. Whenever somebody else doesn't live up to one of your unrealistic expectations, you're going to become angry with this person. The main way of addressing should statements is to apply radical acceptance, which we go over more in DBT. Our next distortion is something called labeling. Labeling is maladaptive because you fail to separate the behavior from the person performing the behavior. You attach a label, and usually not a kind, polite label, but usually a fairly insulting, pejorative label to a person based on a mistake, based on an error usually. You can do that with yourself. You can do that with other people. If somebody cuts you off in traffic, you automatically think to yourself, what a jerk. You've just used a label on somebody. You've applied a global label for the person themselves based on a single behavior. This is similar to overgeneralization. Our final distortion is something called personalization. It can also be called blaming. When we're personalizing, we're taking things too personally. We're maybe holding ourselves responsible for things that might not actually be our fault. If your spouse comes in, slams the door, and is angry, and we automatically think to ourselves, it must have been something that I did to cause that, that's personalization. If you get a call from your teacher, your, your child's school, from a teacher about a problem your child is having and you automatically think to yourself it's because I'm such a bad parent that they're having the problem that's personalization you're holding yourself responsible for something that may not actually be your fault those are the ten main cognitive distortions that we try to identify this is going to be the end of this audio recording there's going to be another audio recording following shortly that has to do with what's called cognitive restructuring. That is, identifying our automatic thoughts, identifying the distortions that are in them, and being able to challenge those automatic thoughts and generate a more adaptive, reasonable conclusion instead of those original automatic thoughts. We're also going to focus on filling out a CBT worksheet while we do that. If you do have any questions about cognitive therapy or behavior therapy, please feel free to ask your treatment coordinator. In this next installment on CBT, we're going to be looking at filling out a CBT worksheet and using it for what's called cognitive restructuring. In cognitive restructuring, we're going to be taking a look at identifying our thoughts, seeing if we can find any cognitive distortions or biases in our thoughts, and then questioning or challenging those thoughts to see how realistic they are and finding something that's more realistic, helpful, and accurate to put in their place. It would probably be helpful at this stage for you to have a copy of the CBT worksheet that you could use as we go through this process. If you don't already have one, you can get one during the CBT group, or you can ask your treatment coordinator and they can get you a copy of that. Let's start with step one. Step one is describing what happened. It's the trigger or precipitant to the event. What you want to do is briefly describe the situation that happened that contributed to the painful emotions. You need to be as specific as possible. If you put down something general like life stinks, that's not going to work here. It's too vague and ambiguous for us to work with. At the same time, you don't want to write a novella in this space. What you want to do is just get to the facts. In fact, one of the ways to come up with the situation is what's called the camera check. If you had a video video camera recording the situation, the video camera is going to record 
what happened and what people said. It's not going to record motivations, emotions, inferences, anything else. It's just going to record what happened, the behavior people had, what they said, and that's all. And that's what we want to look for in this section. Just what happened, just what people said. We're not going to look for interpretations. We're not going to look for inferences. All we want are the facts. Specifically, when, where, what, with whom, but not why. We're going to look at the whys later on. As specific as you can be, the more helpful it's going to be. Keep it short, keep it brief, keep it to the point. Step two in this process is describing how you felt. We're identifying our emotions. You'll notice on the CBT worksheet we have these broken down. The first category is sad. That can include things like feeling blue, depressed, hopeless, down, unhappy. The next one is anxious. That can include things like feeling worried, panicked, nervous, frightened. Our next one is guilty. That can include remorseful, feeling bad, feeling ashamed. Our next one is frustrated. We can include stuck, feeling thwarted, feeling defeated by others. The next is angry. That can include mad, resentful, annoyed, irritated, furious, enraged. And our final one for the purpose of the worksheet is embarrassed. They can include things like feeling foolish, humiliated, or extremely self-conscious. You'll notice there's a way to rate the intensity of the emotions. The emotions don't have to add up to 100%. Each emotion gets a 0 to 100% rating. 100% in this case is the strongest of that emotion that you've ever felt in your life. There is only 100%. There's not 120%. If you put down 100%, it means that's the strongest you've ever felt that emotion in your entire life. It's helpful to identify specific emotions as much as possible. It's also helpful to rate the intensity of the emotions. We're going to be re-rating the intensity of the emotions after we finish the cognitive restructuring process. Our next section is step three. It's identifying your automatic thoughts. As you may recall from the first segment of this recording on CBT, are automatic thoughts that are automatic. They pop into our head. We're not trying to have them. We don't necessarily want to have them, but they occur with the situation. What we're trying to do is to be as specific as possible in terms of identifying our automatic thoughts. When we're filling out our CBT worksheet, it's usually a good thing to have one with us when we first start this process. If we have one with us, we can immediately record what our automatic thoughts were. If we wait until we have a break during the day to record our automatic thoughts, if we wait until later on that night, if we wait until right before CBT group, we're going to have a harder time identifying the specific thoughts that we have. If we record them as quickly as we can on the CBT worksheet, they're a little fresher, they're a little more accurate, they give us a better slice into what exactly is going on. We want to be as specific as possible in identifying our automatic thoughts. Don't edit them, put them down word for word. If you need to put in dirty words, go ahead and put in dirty words if those are part of the original thoughts that you have. Don't edit these. Make them verbatim as close as possible to what you experienced in your head. Automatic thoughts can include inferences, assumptions, conclusions that you draw. It could also include images middle pictures that you might have about the situation that you experienced 
while you were going through the situation. Be as specific as you can in terms of identifying those automatic thoughts. You'll notice on the worksheet that there are a couple of columns. The first, obviously, is for the automatic thoughts. The next column is to identify the distortions that are on the next sheet. The last column is the degree of belief that you had in those automatic thoughts. That's another 0 to 100% rating with 100% complete, total, absolute belief in the validity of that thought at the time that you had it. 0 would be you didn't believe it in the least, and each of the percentage points indicates a stronger degree of belief. It's important that we have that down because, again, it helps us challenging those beliefs and be able to rate the effectiveness of some of those challenges and restatements that we're able to come up with. If you can just do the first three steps on the CBT worksheet, identifying the situation, identifying and rating the emotions, and identifying the automatic thoughts, that's the main part of this for the purpose of what we're going to be doing either in the CBT groups or working with this one-on-one. -on -one. You don't have to complete the entire worksheet. If you can just get these first three steps, that gives us enough information that we can work with you either one-on-one -on -one or in group for the purpose of cognitive restructuring. Because identifying our automatic thoughts gives us a slice into what's going on inside our heads, sometimes it can be a little bit embarrassing for people. Sometimes it's better not to share these with friends or family members right away. Instead, save those for work in your therapy, and we'll go over those either in group or one-on-one. -on -one. Our next step, step four, is trying to identify the cognitive distortions that are in our automatic thoughts. As you'll recall, we have ten primary cognitive distortions that we're looking for. There's a cheat sheet of those on page three that gives you a brief rundown on those. You'll also notice that they're referenced with letter A through J. That's for the purpose of writing down the distortion on our automatic thoughts section of the CBT worksheet. Instead of trying to abbreviate and write down the entire distortion, it's easier just to use that column on page two to identify the letter referencing the distortion that we're having. Let me go ahead and do a quick run-through again of the ten distortions that we commonly look for. The first one is all or none thinking, where you see things in extreme terms, where things are good or bad, right or wrong, perfect or worthless, with no room in between the two. Thinking is extreme. The next one is overgeneralization. You take a very specific, specific situation or example and over-apply or too broadly apply it to other situations and events using words like always or never. Middle filtering is where you zoom in on a specific part of a situation or event or concept, but you miss the big picture, or you focus so strongly on something that you don't notice anything else. If you ruminate, you're using mental filtering. Our next one is discounting the positive. You disqualify alternatives or other options by saying they don't count, but stay focused on your original negative or otherwise biased conclusion. Our next one is jumping to conclusions. We make assumptions. In a vague or ambiguous situation, we fill in blanks with our own fears or biased expectations. Our next one is awfulizing. You expect the worst in any situation and don't consider any possibility other than the bad or catastrophic outcome that you've predicted. Our next one is emotional reasoning. You're confusing feelings with facts. Where you think in some way that our emotions mean something that is true without any other evidence. It's similar to the concept of emotion mind in DBT. Our next one is should statements. 
you get so focused on the way you think things or people should be that you can't or accept or deal with the way things actually are. We have unrealistic demands about ourselves and about others. And when we don't meet those unrealistic demands, or other people don't meet those unrealistic demands, then we get angry or we feel guilty. In labeling, we judge a person's character globally based on a single behavior or example or mistake, and then use insulting and pejorative names and insults to describe that person, including yourself. And our final one, personalization, you take things too personally, or you hold yourself personally responsible for things that may have little or nothing to do with you, or blame yourself or others instead of finding a solution to the problem. Hopefully those cognitive distortions seem fairly familiar at this point. If you do need additional assistance or you're having trouble identifying the distortions, it's okay to ask in CBT group or with your treatment coordinator. We'd be happy to help you out with that. Our next step, step five, is finding a way to challenge or question your automatic thoughts. When we're challenging or questioning our automatic thoughts, we're essentially asking ourselves, how do I know if this thought is real? How do I know if this thought is true? Where's the evidence to back this thought up? We're going to treat all our thoughts at this point, particularly the negative ones that contribute to painful emotions, as questionable. We're not sure if they're realistic or not realistic. Instead of accepting them at face value, we're going to take a look at them under a microscope. We're going to examine them. We're going to see if they're really realistic or not. And if we find out that they're not realistic, in our next step, we're going to see if there is a more realistic, helpful, accurate way of looking at things. David Burns, in the Feeling Good Handbook, at last count had 50-plus ways of questioning or challenging our automatic thoughts. I think that's a wonderful system, but it may be a little bit too intense. It may be a little too involved for what we're trying to accomplish here. So we have roughly 11 ways to challenge our thoughts. There's certainly more than that, but we're going to focus on these as a way to start looking at our thoughts, questioning our thoughts, and challenging our thoughts to see if they're actually realistic or not. The first way we can do that is by simply removing the distortion from the thought. If we tell ourselves, nothing ever works out for me, what are some of the distortions involved in that? Well, there's obviously overgeneralization if we tell ourselves nothing ever works out for us. There's all or none thinking because we're implying that things either work out completely, perfectly all the time for us, or they never work out at all. Those are obviously some very extreme views of things. Let's go ahead and just use those two cognitive distortions for our purposes for right now. So the big distortions in there is nothing ever works out for me. Is that actually true? Is that actually realistic? Would others agree with that assessment of things? Can you think of anything that you've actually done today that may have actually worked out for you? Not perfectly, not wonderfully, not made you a millionaire, not gotten you an Olympic gold medal, but have you done anything at all today that's actually worked out for you? Let's think about that one for a second. If you're listening to this audio recording you've successfully managed to load the CD in the CD player. You've successfully managed to modulate the volume and that you're actually listening to my voice right now. Sure, those are fairly small accomplishments, but if you can beat yourself up about the small mistakes, you can certainly give yourself credit for the small accomplishments that you've done. It doesn't seem to be realistic or accurate to think 
that you never accomplish anything. Would you agree with that statement? So if we're removing the distortions, what would be a way of restating that? In this case, it might be, there are times that I do things well, and there are times that I make mistakes. Is this one of those times I've made a mistake? If the answer is yes, it disqualifies that automatic thought. It's not particularly realistic. It's not particularly accurate. It's not particularly helpful. In our next one, just the facts. What we're looking at is trying to establish the known facts about the situation. Again, we want to be factually based. We want to be evidence-based. The big key phrase here is, where's the evidence? How do I know what I'm thinking is real or true or accurate? What are the facts? What is the evidence? You'll notice that there is a degree of overlap with a lot of these things. That's okay. Go with the overlap. It's not that big of a deal. We'll be able to apply specific interventions as we go along. But for right now, let's stay focused on, we're going to question and challenge our thoughts. We're going to ask ourselves, how realistic is thought? In this case, we're going to ask ourselves, what are the facts? Not just speculation, not just jumping to conclusions, not just guesses. What are the established facts? If we can stick to the established facts, it's going to take away a lot of the emotional impact that the distortions had and help us think a little bit more clearly. Let's use an example of the thought, I'm never going to get any better. What would be the facts that we could check to find out if this is a realistic thought or not? Have you been able to think of any? Let's go over some of the basics. When you're in the program, every week you're going to be filling out a depression inventory. What are the scores in that depression inventory? It may be that you don't feel better right this second, but would the depression inventory, looking at them week after week, indicate that you're getting worse, indicate that you're still at the same level of depression, or would it indicate that there's some improvement? Not a miraculous healing, but some improvement. Again, we're looking for the evidence. Is your sleeping any better now than it was when you first started the program? Is your appetite better? Are you able to get out of bed and get things accomplished that you weren't able to get accomplished before? Are you able to smile and laugh at things where you had some difficulty doing that before? What's the evidence? You may have to ask other people because they can be more objective than you can. If you're going strictly by the way that you feel, that's not good evidence. The way you feel is not evidence of anything except that you feel bad right now. What's the overall pattern? Collect data, gather data. What you're trying to do is to be your own detective, to be your own scientist in trying to get rid of some of those erroneous beliefs that you have that contribute to the depression. One of our next ways to question or challenge our automatic thoughts is called, on the other hand. This involves finding the dialectic, the balance between extremes. You may recall this from our DBT groups. So in this case, if you've made an extremely biased statement, let's go with one of our old examples. I can never do anything right. That's a pretty extreme view of things. I can never do anything right. So if we recognize that that's a pretty extreme view, what would an extreme view on the exact opposite side of the scale be? In this case, it might be, I do everything perfectly and without effort. Is that a particularly realistic view of things? For most people, I would think it's not. But what we're looking for is to identify the unrealistic extremes on either end of the spectrum. 
at one end of the spectrum, I can never do anything right. At the other end of the spectrum, I do everything perfectly without effort. If we can recognize that those are both pretty skewed, pretty extreme view of things, and that the further we get to the extreme, the less realistic things become, that allows us to try to narrow things down and try to find that balance in between. Can you think of a balanced way of looking between those two extremes to come up with something that's more realistic? Think about that for a second. What would be a more balanced, realistic version of things? This is going to sound similar to some of our other ones, and again, we're looking for the same basic thing. We're trying to find some balance in here. We're trying to get rid of the unrealistic elements. So in this case, it might be something like, some things I do well on, some things I don't do well on. It could also be something along the lines of, I tend to notice my mistakes more than I notice my accomplishments, but my accomplishments are still there. They may seem small, they may seem minute, but they're still there. Does this make sense so far? We're looking for that balance. We're looking to try to find that middle ground between those extreme views. Can you think of any automatic thoughts that you've had today where you could apply this? Our next method to challenge and question our automatic thoughts is called friendly feedback. You may notice that you tend to be more critical of yourself than you would be of almost anybody else that you know. In fact, you can treat complete strangers sometimes with more compassion than you can treat yourself. So in this case, we're going to see if we can tap in to that empathy that you have for others and find a way to apply it to yourself. In this case, what we're going to be asking is, if one of your best friends, if one of the people that you're closest to in your life made the same comment that you just made, how would you respond to them? In this case, let's use our same example that we've used before. I can never do anything right. If your best friend in the world made a small mistake and said that, how would you respond to them? What would you say? Would you be as harsh and critical of them as you are to yourself? Or would you be able to respond with some empathy, with some kindness? Would you beat them into the ground like you beat yourself into the ground? Or would you respond in a more appropriate, realistic, helpful, empathic manner? Think for a second of what you might say. Your best friend has just said, I can never do anything right after making a small mistake. How would you respond? You'd probably say something along the lines of, that's not true. You do lots of things well but you beat yourself up so severely about tiny mistakes that no wonder you're depressed. What might be some other options you could say? What would be some other options in terms of responding? Again, pretend it's your best friend. Pretend it's your child, if that's a way to help you access that empathic part of you. What would you tell that other person? And then how does that not apply to you? Some people have a real double standard against themselves that other people are allowed to make mistakes, but they're not allowed to make mistakes themselves. Other people are allowed to not do things well, but we may have too high of a standard. That's our should statements. Poking their heads in, telling us we should live up to some unrealistically high standard that there's actually no way of actually living up to. We'll cover those later. Our next way of questioning or challenging some of our automatic thoughts is something called Socratic questions. 
obviously the title for this comes from Socrates, or if you're a Bill and Ted fan, Socrates, a Greek philosopher that would engage in disagreements with other people, and instead of directly confronting them about things, would ask a series of questions that would allow the other person to draw their own conclusions to see if their thought was realistic or unrealistic. There are a number of Socratic questions. There's an unlimited number. We have a few that are listed in the CBT manual. I'm going to go over these right now. So take a look and see if any of these might be applicable to your situation. Again, what we're doing is asking questions to allow you to take a look at your automatic thoughts and draw a more reasonable conclusion if you don't think that your thought is particularly realistic. Our first Socratic question is, am I confusing a thought with a fact? What's a thought? A thought is something that goes through your head. Is it always realistic? Is it always accurate? I think by now we've probably established that a lot of our thoughts may not be real realistic or accurate. On the other hand, what's a fact? A fact is something that has evidence that's clearly established to prove that it's correct and no evidence to disprove it. So when we say something is a fact, we have evidence behind it. We have support behind it. It's not just opinion. It's established. Are the thoughts you're having actually factual? Is there evidence that backs them up and supports them? If I said the world is carried on the back of a giant blue turtle named Bruce, would there be any actual evidence to back that up? And if not, that leads us to well, what would be a more realistic, accurate statement that has some facts, that has some evidence behind it. I'm going to go ahead and read through the rest of the Socratic thoughts that we have here. Again, this is not an exhaustive list. There could be many others, and you could come up with some that address your situation much better than the ones that are here. But let me go ahead and go through these step by step. What are the established facts? How do I know my thinking is realistic, true, or accurate? What's the available evidence? Could someone else draw a different conclusion based on the same available evidence? Could some of my conclusions be based upon prior bad experiences that may not apply to this situation? What's an alternative explanation? Are my thoughts consistent with the evidence? What would I tell a friend who is in the same situation? Would I attack her? Or would I be empathic and supportive? Am I asking questions that have no answer? Am I using ultimatum words in my thinking? Am I condemning myself as a person based on a single event or episode? What's the worst possible outcome? What's the best possible outcome? What's the most realistic outcome? Are my responses to a problem based more on how bad I feel or the best way to handle the situation? Am I assuming that my view is the only one possible? What would be the worst thing about changing my thinking? What would be the best thing? What would be the worst thing about changing my behavior? What would be the best thing? Am I focusing on my weaknesses instead of my strengths? Am I focusing on a mistake rather than my accomplishments and hard work? Am I expecting myself to be perfect? Am I blaming myself for something that is not my fault? 
Am I holding myself responsible for the behavior of others? Am I taking things personally that have little or nothing to do with me? Am I using a double standard? Am I paying attention only to the bad side of things? Am I paying attention only to the mistakes that I've made rather than the accomplishments? Am I overestimating the chances of disaster? Am I exaggerating the importance of the event? Am I fretting about the way things should be instead of accepting and dealing with them as they actually are? Am I assuming that I can do nothing to change my situation? Am I predicting the future instead of experimenting with it? What many people find helpful with Socratic thoughts is to actually write the ones that are applicable to them down on 3x5 cards and then carry those cards with them so that they can review them on a regular basis. That way, as soon as they have a particularly negative, troubling, automatic thought, they're able to take their cards out and challenge and question those thoughts immediately when they're in that situation. Can you think of any other Socratic questions, questions to challenge your thinking that would be applicable to your situation? If so, go ahead and write them down on a piece of paper, in your manual, or on some note cards and carry them around with you. Our next method of challenging and questioning our automatic thoughts is something called pros and cons. This is very similar to the pros and cons that we use in DBT in the Distress Tolerance module. We can do it in a much simpler way. What are the advantages and disadvantages of thinking the automatic thought that you have? What are the advantages and disadvantages of the behavior that you have? Let's use excessive sleeping as an example. What are the advantages of excessive sleeping? Well, it takes away some of the pain, at least temporarily, makes time go by a little faster, you don't have to deal with things because you've avoided them, and that can sometimes be a temporary relief. On the other hand, what are the disadvantages of excessive sleep? Well, one of those is that it's going to make the depression worse rather than better. It's going to lengthen the recovery period for depression. You're going to feel more depressed longer. Your behavior is going to be more impaired longer. It's going to worsen family relationships. It's going to make things at work pretty difficult. If you were out of bed, you could be doing things that would be better for your depression rather than doing things that are going to make the depression worse. So you have to ask yourself, do the advantages outweigh the disadvantages, or the disadvantages outweigh the adva uh, advantages? It's maybe time to start making some changes in your behavior and your thinking. Or if you consider yourself unlikable, what are the advantages and disadvantages of that? Can you do your own pros and cons list? If you can do them in your head, great. If not, go ahead and get a piece of paper, write down the advantages and disadvantages with any of your automatic thoughts, and see what conclusion you can draw based on that. Our next method for questioning and challenging our thoughts is something called acceptance. This can be a difficult one to use. If you find yourself having a lot of difficulty with it, that's okay. Put it aside, move on to something else. You can come back and revisit it later. The concept of acceptance is similar to the concept of radical acceptance from DBT. This is specifically useful with our should statements that we have. Remember, should statements contribute to anger and feelings of guilt. So with acceptance, what we're asking is, if the automatic thought were true, what would be so bad about that? Would there be a way to accept that? Not like it, not enjoy it, but to be able to tolerate it. 
to be able to accept it. This is useful for some automatic thoughts. It may not be so useful for other automatic thoughts. But what we're trying to do is to be able to tolerate the conclusions that we have, instead of fighting against them, of just being able to tolerate them. Our next intervention is something called the Mythbusters Challenge. If you watch Discovery, you've probably seen an episode or two of Mythbusters. These are two guys that have a background in Hollywood special effects and engineering. In fact, one of the better quotes from the show is, I reject your reality and substitute my own. That's something that many of us do on a regular basis with our distortions and our automatic thoughts. The key to the Mythbusters challenge is to identify an automatic thought and then figure out an experiment that you can run to see if that thought is realistic or not. Can you think of a thought that you might be able to run an experiment on to test to see if it's realistic or not? In one of the experiments run by the Mythbusters, they checked out the myth that butter toast always falls buttered side down. So they went through several different rigs to test and see about that. So first they had to find a rig that would drop a piece of toast half the time on one side, half the time on the other side, to know that they had an unbiased rig that they could use to test the accuracy of that. Once they finally got that down, then they had to butter lots of toast and drop lots of toast, and then count the results to see what the results showed. This is a very unbiased way of checking to see how realistic things are. We're not going to use assumptions. We're not going to do guesses. We're not going to go by our emotions to judge how accurate and realistic something is. We're actually going to run an experiment and see what the data shows us and draw a conclusion based on that. Let's use another one of the automatic thoughts we've already used as an example. I can never do anything right. Well what kind of experiment can we run to see if this is a realistic, accurate thesis or if it may have some flaws and it's not particularly accurate? Can you think of some ways we might check that? One of the ways is that we'll do some basic tasks. It could be that we have somebody pick up three pieces of paper, fold those three pieces of paper in half, and set them on the other side of the table. Sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? Well, that's just it. It is simple. But the point is, you have lots of accomplishments every day that you don't give yourself credit before, but you're so focused on the tiny little mistakes that you're not able to see anything else. So what we're doing is running an experiment to see how realistic our conclusions are. If we did that and even increased the difficulty of the tasks, how do you think most people would perform on those tasks? most people would do pretty well. Most people would be able to draw a conclusion based on the new evidence that, okay, maybe my thinking is not real realistic. Maybe it's not that I can't do anything right. Maybe it's that there are some things that I don't do right. Sometimes there are mistakes that I make. And sometimes I do things reasonably well, even though I am depressed. Again, we're looking to gather new evidence, gather new data from our experiment, and draw a conclusion based on that new evidence. Our next method for questioning and challenging our automatic thoughts is, how's that thought working for you? This is similar to the pros and cons, although it has a little bit of a different angle to it. But again, we're looking for ways to question and challenge our automatic thoughts and to see how realistic they are. What are the consequences of thinking that way? If you think that you can't do anything right, what does that do to your mood? What does that do to your relationships with other people? How's your job performance based on that? Is that thought working for you? Is that thought realistic? Is there a way to question and challenge that thought? 
So basically what we're asking is, are the thoughts or behaviors that you currently have, do they help you feel emotionally the way you want to feel? Accomplish your short-term and long-term goals? Spend your time in a manner that's enjoyable or productive? Help you with your relationships with family members? with social relationships, or live the lifestyle that you would prefer. If not, maybe it's time to make some changes to those. Our next one is something called Work the Numbers. You'll notice we do a lot of ratings. We use a lot of trying to uh, assign values to things to check the intensity of them. And we're going to be doing the same thing here. This is similar to the on the other hand, but we're breaking things down a little bit more specifically. Let's use the same automatic thought that we've used for a couple of these. I can't do anything right. What we're going to be doing is trying to assign some values from 100% to 0% to find some evidence to go behind these and see if that actually matches our experience. So in this case, if we're using the automatic thought of I can't do anything right, at a, if this thought was 100% right, what would that look like? What would the actual outcome be? In this case, it might be that you're completely and totally incapable of performing any task adequately. That means every step you take would cause you to trip and fall. Every word out of your mouth is unintelligible. Every minor task results in complete disaster. This works retrospectively as well. You've never been able to perform any task adequately, ever. It's impossible to even eat, walk, or dress without assistance from other people. Your picture is literally in the dictionary to illustrate the concept of failure, and your name is synonymous worldwide with failure and is referenced frequently during national newscasts. He really, insert your name, that up. Is that realistic? Is that an accurate portrayal of what actually goes on with you? Or is that pretty extreme? Hopefully you said pretty extreme. At 90%, you experience frequent failure with any effort that you make. Most tasks are a complete failure, the majority resulting not only in failure, but in personal injury as well. You're unable to accomplish the most basic tasks without adverse consequences. Others openly ridicule you on an almost constant basis because of this. At 80%, a few times a day your efforts meet success, at least partially, but the bulk of your efforts still result in failure. Now let's go to the other extreme. If this was 0% true, you've never made any mistake or taken any action that was not completely successful and not effortless. Every task you undertake succeeds wildly, and you are met with universal praise and approval. Does that sound particularly realistic to anybody you know? Probably not. How about a 10% true? You're pretty successful in most aspects of your life. The majority of your efforts turn out well, and even if it's not perfect, it works pretty well. Others generally like you, you have some close friends, and people are easily willing to spend time with you. You receive frequent compliments on your work. You can accomplish most tasks with limited effort. And then up to 20%. You do reasonably well with most tasks and have to expend some effort, but you're generally successful. Others spend time with you without difficulty, and you have close friendships without much effort. So what we're trying to do is put a 10% or even 5% rating on the accuracy of that thought. If that thought were actually 100% true, what would that look like? Then what's the other extreme? And let's see if we can find someplace in the middle ground that seems to be more accurate, that seems to be more realistic, that seems to be a better indicator of what you're actually able to do.
Our next method of questioning and challenging our automatic thoughts is called the Detective Columbo Method. Um, you may remember a TV show back in the 70s called Columbo. This is a police detective played by Peter Falk who seemed to be bumbling at times, but was actually fairly bright and on the ball. My favorite quote from the show was, explain it to me like I'm a five-year-old. What we're trying to do is, if you're explaining the thought to somebody who's five years old, see if you can put it in words that a five-year-old would understand and see if the thought still makes sense to you. See if the thought is still realistic or not. Seems like a fairly simple intervention, but for some people, it's an amazingly effective one. But it's worth a shot. Our final one for right now is something called generating basic coping statements. With the idea that instead of working on cognitive restructuring, catching our automatic thoughts, identifying distortions, and challenging them and drawing more realistic conclusions, what we do ahead of time is come up with a library of basic coping statements to help us get through difficult situations. We actually carry 3x5 cards with us with some of these things on there, and we're able to use them when we get into rough situations. We have responses prepared ahead of time to help us out. The stages that we're going to be using are, first, preparing for the stressor, two, confronting and handling the stressor, three, coping with feelings at critical moments, and four, reinforcing self-statements. So let's take a look at each category and some suggestions for some basic coping statements we could use. Keep in mind, you're always free to make up your own, to add new ones, to take out ones that don't make sense. The first one, preparing for the stressor. Some statements that we might be able to make ahead of time is, what is it I have to do? Can I develop a plan to deal with it? If I have a plan to help manage it, I won't have to worry as much. I've learned several coping skills I can use in this situation. I'll do better if I stick with the plan I developed. For confronting and handling the stress, some statements might be, I've handled this before, I can now. Just take it step by step. This won't last forever, I just need to get through this rough part. I've been in worse situations than this, I can make it through this one now. Relax. Use the breathing exercises. Keep my focus off the depression and anxiety on something else. I practiced for this. I'm going to use my coping skills now. For coping with feelings at critical moments, it might include statements like, stay focused on my skills. What skills are going to be most helpful for me? Don't try to eliminate the depression or anxiety. Just keep it managed. If the depression or anxiety gets worse, I can switch to a different skill. And for the reinforcing self-statements, it might include things like, it was tough, but I did it. I didn't get rid of the depression or anxiety, but I managed it okay. I handled that reasonably well. I can make a difference in how I deal with things. Ideally, you'll develop a whole library of coping statements that you can use. The trick is to keep the statements with you. 3x5 note cards is an easy way, or a notepad is an easy way. But the more you remind yourself of the coping statements, the better you're able to get through rough situations. If you wait until you're in the middle of the situation, it's going to make it a lot more difficult. Our next step on the CBT worksheet, step six, is what are some more realistic and adaptive ways of looking at the situation, of looking at my automatic thoughts? We've just spent some time questioning how realistic our automatic thoughts are. In this stage, what we're going to be doing is trying to develop a more realistic, evidence-based, fact-based view of what's going on. 
Remember, we're not looking for things to be made more positive as much as we are realistic. So what we're going to be doing is trying to generate some more realistic, reasonable responses to our automatic thoughts. When people present their CBT worksheets at the board, they usually are able to generate one or two responses to each automatic thought. Generally speaking, the more responses you have, the more effective they are in decreasing our belief in the old thoughts, increasing our belief in the new thoughts. It's better to have two responses than one. It's better to have five responses than two. It's better to have ten than it is five. It's better to have twenty than it is to have ten. The more responses you have that are realistic, fact-based, evidence-based, the better chance you have of making some lasting changes in your emotions. So if we use an example that we've used in this recording so far, I can never do anything right. Hopefully by now we've had a chance to use some of our methods to question and challenge that thought, but what would be some more realistic, accurate conclusions that we can draw instead? Go ahead and pause the recording at this point and see if you can think of some more realistic responses to that thought based on some of the ways that you've been able to challenge some of those original automatic thoughts. It could be that you use any number of responses. First of all, let's remove the distortion. In this case, it would be, well, it's not realistic or accurate that I can't do anything right. It's that I tend to notice my mistakes more than I notice my accomplishments. If I actually keep track of my accomplishments, it turns out I actually do fairly well. But if it's the only the mistakes that I notice, it seems overwhelming and I feel like I'm incompetent. If we're using just the facts, ma'am, we can point out that when I kept track of how I did with accomplishments, it turns out I was actually able to accomplish things, even though I only noticed the bad side of things, the mistakes that I make. If I use the on the other hand, I've identified an opposite extreme of I can do everything effortlessly and perfectly, and we recognize that that's also unrealistic. The middle ground between those two things is sometimes I do things well, sometimes I do things not so well, but I'm hardly incompetent or incapable. If we were to use the friendly feedback and identify a best friend that we're talking to, our response might go something like, that's absolutely not true. I do lots of things well. Other people comment on the work that I do, on the things that I do, and like what I do. It's obvious that I do some things well. It's also obvious sometimes I make mistakes, and that's just part of being human. See if you can use the other ways of questioning and challenging our thoughts to draw your own new conclusions about the situation, and see if you can come up with something that's not necessarily positive, but realistic, fact-based, and evidence-based. When we generate new conclusions, when we come up with a way to put the lie to that automatic thought, we want to make sure we don't find any distortions in those. We want to make sure that they're not positive, but that they're realistic. If we lie to ourselves positively, it may make us feel better for a little while, but it's not going to last very long. If we come up with responses that are realistic and fact-based, it means we're going to be able to keep the painful emotions down, the unrealistic expectations down as much as possible, and that's going to work out well for us in the long run. When we're first starting the process of cognitive restructuring, I think it's important that we actually fill out the CBT worksheet. 
If we try to do it in our heads, we may be fairly successful at it, but we may also struggle. When we put it down on paper, it makes the concepts much easier to get, much easier to understand, and we get it much more quickly than we would if we're trying to do it in our head. It also allows us to work with our treatment coordinator and making sure that we're catching things the way that we need to, that we're using the skill to the best of our abilities. Once you've done it, in written format a few times, it makes it easier to get the concepts down, it makes it easier to apply the concepts, and it makes it easier to manage our emotions a lot better. Once we've gotten it down in writing a few times, that's the time when we start doing it in our head without trying to write everything down. But when we're first starting, use the worksheet. Formalize the process as much as possible. There are a couple of other steps that we have on the worksheet. We'll cover those in a little more detail one-on-one or in the CBT group if we need to. Hopefully this recording will help you review some of the concepts and to be able to question some of your unrealistic thoughts and find more helpful realistic responses to put in their place. If you do have any questions about this, go ahead and ask your treatment coordinator or bring it up in CBT group. We'd be happy to answer whatever questions that you have. We hope you find these audio recordings helpful. These were designed to supplement the coping skills you've been learning in the CBT and DBT groups, not to replace those groups. We plan to add additional audio recordings in the very near future. If you have any questions, please contact your treatment coordinator.